Hello and welcome to the Six Cells podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Cells. Um, today we're going to be speaking to Phil Barden, who's the author of the book Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy. And he has spent decades working in senior marketing roles at some of the world's biggest brands. Today, Phil is the MD of Decode Marketing, a company that leverages decision science to empower brands to maximize marketing effectiveness. Phil, welcome to the Six Cells podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks very much for having me as a guest. You're, you're welcome and thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. So on holiday this year uh, in sometimes sunny Tenerife, um, I was um, I started reading your book and I knew immediately that I wanted to uh, have a conversation to you. And I think I pinged you from my sun lounger in um, Tenerife to uh, to see if we could set this up. So I'm really grateful that we ca um, that, that we could. Um, Phil, you spent 25 years um, working at brands such as Unilever, Diageo and T-Mobile in senior senior marketing positions. Um, and you talked about um, more recently, perhaps in your career, um, a, a fascinating new mental model, which kind of changed the way you thought about marketing um, and changed the sort of the, the course of your career, I guess. Um, so could you summarize perhaps what your previous thinking might have looked like and what that fascinating new mental model was and how it kind of changed the way you think about marketing, please? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I grew up um, in Unilever and uh, I guess quite arrogantly felt that as one of the big marketing universities, let's say, that I, I knew about brands. I knew what made brands tick and how and why communication worked and um, what made us buy or not buy. And um, I think the, the, the prevalent models of thinking back then were things like people behave in a certain way because they hold certain attitudes and the way to get behavior change was to have some sort of intervention which typically meant advertising that would make people reappraise their attitudes change their attitudes and consequently their behaviors would change and um, what i've learned since is that actually what happens the vast majority of the time is that attitudes are formed as a result of behavior. So we behave in a certain way, which is driven by motivation, and then we form attitudes post hoc to conform with that because otherwise we wouldn't seem like rational beings, you know, in control of our own, our own behaviors. Um, so that sort of attitude leads to behavioral change was one of the things in the previous mental model. And the other thing I learned about that is it's perfectly possible to change behavior without changing attitudes at all, just by changing um, things that we're faced with, you know, the context, the situation in which we, we find ourselves. So that that model was was flawed. The other big failure, I think, in marketing for many, many years and advertising was that you could predict what people were going to do simply by asking them. And that what people reported to you in terms of whether they liked a pack design or not, or whether they liked advertising or not, was a very accurate reflection and forecast for what their future intentions and, and hence behavior would be. And um, I found out again during my journey into this whole decision science or behavioral science arena that there is a massive gap between what people say and what people do. 
and that when we interrogate people and show them a pack design, you know, they they are free to analyze that pack design for for an hour or so and and comment on it. And they make stuff up. We we make stuff up as human beings. And and it also doesn't replicate the reality of buying a pack on the shelf in a supermarket when you've got eight minutes left. Uh, and the same with advertising. We never give advertising the attention that it receives, for example, in a focus group. We just don't. You know, we, Firstly, we have to pay attention to it in the first place to get it into the brain. So I think that those are the two things. You know, the, the models that attitude led to behavior, which is not the case. And secondly, that what people say and what people do uh, can be very different, very different things. And what, what happened to change that was really me working with, um, when I was at T-Mobile, I was VP for T-Mobile in Europe and had to reposition and relaunch the brand in 12 European countries. And, and I was struggling, frankly. I commissioned a lot of research that just wasn't making sense. And um, someone introduced me to the founders of Decode Marketing. It was founded in Germany by a neuroscientist and a psychologist. And I met them and, and asked them a few things about, you know, why would this ad work or why why wouldn't it? And they just answered it there and then We're using completely different language, a different perspective and uh, a wholly new mental model of, of how brands work and how communication works. And I commissioned them to work on the relaunch. And the result was so compelling, so successful commercially um, for example, in the UK, I and mean, this is going back a while now, that we had the flash mob dance ad at London's Liverpool Street Station. It, yeah. yeah, it's got just under 42 million YouTube views, and you know, which is pre pretty famous. Um, and it, it grew sales by 49%. It doubled footfall into the T-Mobile retail stores within 48 hours. Uh, all the sales force thought we would had local activation um, activities going on and there wasn't any actually it was just the app uh, and we were all taken by surprise uh, and the the guys at decode kind of smiled and said well why are you surprised because we what we've encoded in that ad are motivators of behavior and um, why are you surprised that it works so that was a massive sort of aha moment for me in a light bulb and as a result I, uh, I quit my client side career to join Decode and to set Decode up in the UK. So that's what uh, that's what led me to where I am now. Yeah, I was going to say it worked so well that you ended up working for them. Um, mm. um, so what was going on there then, Phil? So I remember that um, flash dance um, very clearly, and as you say, that was a lot. That was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? So what's going on in a consumer's mind to um, to maybe watching a video on YouTube or maybe they even saw it live in, um, in the mainline station in London and to then think from there I must go into a T-Mobile store. I, obviously, they're not doing that in a conscious level. Now I've seen that flash dance, I must go into a T-Mobile mm. store. But if you double footfall within 48 hours, then something has triggered that. And, and yeah. I'm curious to know what that was and, and, and why that worked. Sure. Well, they... they... Probably the most important fundamental thing that I learned working with these guys is that human motivation is based on achieving goals. So goals is a term, sometimes we use the phrase jobs to be done. 
when we, we buy brands, whether they're products or services, to help us meet our goals or our jobs to be done. So that's those, the old adage of people don't want a six-inch uh, drill bit, they want a six-inch hole, right? Yeah, exactly, but extending it further, because actually what they don't want is is the, the one-inch hole uh, or six-inch hole in the wall. What they want is to do something else. So it may be to hang a picture on the wall. It may be to put up a bookshelf. It may be to put a TV on the wall. So that's kind of a functional job to be done. But then linked to that functional job, and you cannot divorce these, um, is the higher level, more implicit social, emotional, and psychological goals or jobs to be done. So if I want to hang a picture then a picture might be for my own appreciation, uh, which gives me a sense of uh, satisfaction and, and self-esteem. Or it may be for public display to say something about the type of person I am, which reflects on my, my status um, within, my, within my peer group. Or if I want to put up um, a TV, that would meet goals of entertainment, sociability, relaxation, mental relief, caring for myself, caring for other people. So there's always there's always this combination of the, the functional job to be done and the social, emotional, psychological job to be done. And what we did with T-Mobile was some um, quantitative research in the category, but also uh, for the brands in the category, to find out what goals and jobs to be done were associated and hence um, drivers of choice motivating drivers and the way we did that was to to use what we call implicit research which is a, a technique that social psychologists created about 40 50 years ago because they knew that there's a massive difference between what people say and what they do so if you ask people if they're racist or you know what they think about their immigrant neighbors for example which is a you know classical sort of um, typical social psychological uh, area of, of investigation no one's or very few people will explicitly self-report that they're racist. Um, there will be a large number of people who will say they're not racist, but they actually are. So you need to have a research technique that, that is able to access that response. And the, the implicit testing does that using reaction time. So you're getting responses in fractions, in milliseconds, so which doesn't enable the respondent to reflect and control their answer. So it's a more spontaneous, intuitive response. So we did this type of research in the category to find out what motivates people to buy um, mobile phones and use um, mobile networks. We also did it for the different brands to see how they differed in relation to the category. So we, what we knew was what drives purchase and how are the brands perceived. Therefore, we knew what the gap was between T-Mobile and drivers in the category, and that's what we sought to associate with T-Mobile. Because if you if you have a strong association between a brand and your goal, then that's the one that's the, that brand is the most mentally available. It will come to mind in in buying uh, situations, and that's the one that you will buy. Uh, because the brain doesn't, uh, you know, it operates to a winner, winner takes it all principle. It doesn't bother to spend any more cognitive effort thinking through all the different alternatives. It just goes with the one that, that it's learned is going to be the best fit, the highest instrumentality to help me achieve a goal. So that's what we coded into the ad. The, the genius of the agency, Saatchi, 
was to create the flash mob idea, which brought to life these goals. Now, well, I can't tell you what all the goals are because we still work with Georgia Telecom, the owner of T-Mobile. Um, so they're, you know, they're confidential. But one of the goals, unsurprisingly, in mobile is sociability. Now, you might say, but that applies to everybody. That's generic in the category. And, and yes, it is. But the real trick was conveying sociability in a way that was distinctive for T-Mobile. So that flash mob idea, which was this sort of spreading, um, uh, I, spreading uh, sharing, uh, which is, you know, AKA sociability and um, this sort of infectious spontaneity uh, of, the, of the flash mob was fantastic at not only conveying the goal of sociability, but doing it in a way that was unique. So it's, it wouldn't be how Vodafone or how O2 or how 3 did sociability. It became unique to T-Mobile. So that was the, that was the secret source, if you like. Yeah, it, it, I would. You don't have to answer this, obviously, because it's uh, confidential. But I would imagine that the camera is a big uh, driver as well. And and, and then I noticed recently that Apple um, released their iPhone. What are we even up to now? Fourteen Pro Max or whatever. And there was a problem with the camera. And I was thinking, how can they let that leave the leave the shop, as it were, with a dodgy camera? That's like a really big reason to upgrade from one model to another is the quality of the camera, right? And and so that came to mind when I was thinking of of the flash dances. You've got people around the outside of it recording it and filming it and you know that sociability sharing it on social and whatever so yeah really interesting so so the uplift in the, the the double um doubling the footfall in such a short period of time i'm assuming must have meant that you reached people that were in the category and ready to buy and they just ended up coming to you as a result of the flash dance as opposed to someone else yeah exactly because the the mobile business is constantly in a state of flux. You, know, you have people entering and leaving contracts um, all the time, obviously different contract lengths and, and end dates. And one of, the, one of the biggest problems in that market is churn. So losing people from the network. And um, so the, the, the networks are constantly trying to fill a leaky bucket, add new people, acquisitions in, in, in the top end. But also to plug the holes in the gap uh, in in the bucket, and this um, this ad seemed to do both. It it grew penetration, so new people joined the the network, but it also reduced churn. We we um, reduced churn by about twenty percent, and that goes straight to the bottom line. That's uh, an enormous commercial impact. Yeah, interesting. So, in your book. Um, decoded the the science behind why we buy um, i'm just going to hold that up this is actually the oldest the older um of the two i understand that you have a a beautiful new edition uh, that, that people can um buy and read now and I'll, i definitely will be buying that um, you talk about um the two different models of how we think as um the pilot and the autopilot just um for clarity are we talking about what daniel kahneman talks about um as system one and system two thinking Yes, exactly the same. Uh, I use the metaphor of a pilot and an autopilot just to, to help people understand. So the, the idea, sure, yeah. yeah, exactly. That So system one is, is a set of automatic mental processes that, that just never sleep. You know, they're on 24-7. They work pre-consciously, so we're not even, even aware of what they do. But then they work in milliseconds. 
uh, intuitively, spontaneously, and, and they are geared for action. They're, this is this system is what nature has evolved over millennia to, um, to keep us alive, basically, help us to survive faced with the onslaught of all the different stimuli that we're exposed mm. to uh, during the day. And then system two, in contrast, like a pilot, um, has very limited bandwidth for processing information. Uh, and it's very effortful to process information uh, that way. So the pilot's quite happy to let the autopilot do its job, which is a very complex job, but it does it very well. Um, but the pilot can override if necessary. It's, it's always there and, uh, and it can step in when something new needs to be learned. So, for example, if we learn a, a foreign language or learn a new skill, that is a pilot process. That's a reflective, effortful mental process of system two. But what, as the learning progresses, things become more implicit or intuitive. So and this applies throughout our lives. When we learn to walk initially, that's a massively difficult cognitive task. But now we don't think about walking. It just happens. So it, it's moved from system two to system one, from the pilot to the autopilot. And the same is true. Driving feel like sometimes I yeah. arrive at my destination and I have no idea how I got there because like my autopilot's taken over. I'm thinking about something else. I'm automatically steering, changing gear, indicating, looking, mirror signal, all of that good stuff. Um, or I better say that since it's going out. Maybe sometimes I don't. I don't uh, maybe I've, I've learned some bad habits over the years. But essentially, I don't have to think about it anymore. Yet when you first start driving, you're like, "Oh my goodness, hang on a minute. How am I ever going to be able to look in the mirror and change gear?" And you know, like, yeah. everything feels so alien because you've got to really focus on it, right? It's exactly that. Exactly that, Mike. And now, you, as you say, you drive from A to B, and you can listen to the Six Cells podcast while you're doing it, and you get from A to B safely. Except if Let's say there's some roadworks and you have to make a diversion and then you'll probably turn the podcast down or off yeah. because you have to then focus your pilot system on the new information. Turn the podcast off. That's another reason we shouldn't have any more roadworks. Yeah, that's correct. Awful. Thank you. Nice plug. <laughs> Checks in the post. So um, what I'm interested about, um, what I'm really interested about is, um, we touched upon it earlier, is attention, both active and passive. So um, um, we had um, Shazia Ginai, the um, UK CEO at NeuroInsight on the podcast recently. I don't know if you're um, aware, but uh, for those that aren't, um, they basically uh, measure brain activity um, in response to advertising to figure out um, how people respond. And we've spoken to a lot of the, um, the, the kind of leaders in the, uh, the measuring attention space on the podcast, such as Karen Nelson Field at Amplified Intelligence, uh, Mike Follett at Lumen Research. We've spoken to media agencies and we've spoken to uh, media owners. But it seems that there's um, a, a growing body of evidence that active attention isn't necessary uh, for us to perceive brands. Um, and the, the example I give, and, and I'll get to the question in a second, but I've spent a lot of time in football stadiums over my life and there's perimeter advertising around the outside of the pitch, but I couldn't tell you now one advert that I've seen around the outside of the pitch. However, I suspect that um, somewhere in my subconscious, I have linked some of those brands to the experience of football, right? So mm. we make associations, our brains make associations between things, right? So um, uh, Shazia talked about it as having brand rooms 
in our brain. And obviously they're not brandrams, they're sort of a collection of neurons. But if we were, um, the example she gave was Cadbury. Um, and if you went into the Cadbury brand room, it might be purple. It might have a certain font. It might have a glass and a half of milk in the corner and a drumming gorilla in the other corner sort of thing, you know? So um, it's those associations that we kind of build up over time. So I guess my question to you is, how does our autopilot perceive brands um, and brand touch points? Um, and how important is that to us as marketers? Well, the, it's um, the autopilot never sleeps and it and it's constantly helping us to stay alive. So when we, uh, interesting things about attention, uh, we only have two degrees of pin sharp, full color focus, so-called foveal vision. The rest of our uh, field of vision, 120 degrees peripheral. And as you move to the periphery, the images become increasingly blurred and lose color saturation as well. Now, of course, our eyes move, what are called fixations. So we can look at different points, but at any one time, whether we're looking at a screen or whether we're pushing a trolley down a supermarket aisle or reading a book or whatever it might be, what's in the periphery is blurred. But our autopilot is constantly aware of this and is scanning all the time for things that might be rewarding to us. So things that help us meet our goals or things that might be threatening to us, things that we might need to take action. I had an experience uh, recently in London when like, like many smartphone zombies, I was walking along staring at my phone and I went across the street and, and, and I pulled back and then I looked, then I looked up and then the taxi went past. Mm. And I wasn't consciously aware until I pulled back and looked that my autopilot had, had kept me alive, basically, because it yeah. had detected this motion in peripheral vision um, that was approaching me. And it took action before I was consciously aware of that. So that's, you know, that's how powerful it is. The same thing's true of... Um, uh, of any stimulus in the environment. So yes, you're right, those ads around the perimeter, they will have been registered. We won't necessarily have conscious, explicit recall of them, but we will have registered them. And the, sa the same is true when we're um, with, with um, uh, our hearing as well. So we could be looking at a screen on the sofa and, and there's an ad playing on a TV, our autopilot will be registering that, you know, in a peripheral vision and an auditory um, sense as well. Um, and this this idea of peripheral vision plays a very crucial role as well in helping the brain to understand and predict uh, what we're perceiving. So um, there's a, a neuroscientist called Moshe Barr who did some great work showing that object recognition, for example. So when we are looking at an object, um, is not solely based on what that thing is. Now, um, our brains will be searching associative memory. So what is it? What does it represent? Where do I know it from? But we also use the context in which we perceive the object to help make sense of it. So I've got an example in the book where uh, the same black object is shown in blurred vision in two different contexts. And in one context, it looks like a hairdryer. And in a different context, it looks like a power tool. It's exactly the same object, but just because the context has changed, we, we, we interpret it differently. So it's this whole peripheral vision and context and, and autopilot processing is hugely important. Yeah. So if we if we um, think about it then as 
focused attention. So that's what we're actually fixating on at the moment. So your face is what I'm fixated on at the moment. And then all around the room, there's a billion other things that I could look at, but I'm not. Um, if, so if we if we think of focused attention as what we're actually attending to right now, and then everything else um, as, as a secondary thing, could brands be built in, t- in their entirety through peripheral attention, essentially? So could we see... Um, every time we go onto LinkedIn, we see six cells. Every time we go onto Twitter, we see six cells. Every time we open up our email, we see six cells. We keep going like that. So um, it's kind of there, but we're not paying attention to it. We're not going to read it. We're not going to look at it today, whatever. But it's kind of there. It's kind of there. It's kind of there. Could the brand be built in its entirety, or do we need that focused attention as well in order to, um, you know, to, to kind of um, build memory structures for brands? Because if you read people. Um, you know, How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp, or you read any Mark Ritson or Rory Sutherland. In fact, they uh, wrote the, the, the forward for your book. Um, marketers talk about the um, distinctive brand asset, assets being delivered in a consistent and frequent basis in order to, to build memory structures. But if people only have a very fleeting, active focus on your brand, but many, many, many touch points that are perhaps in the periphery, What's the relative value of those two touch points, would you say? It's difficult to put a number on it. I would say that both both are important, but they will build different associations. So the fact that I perceive six cells on LinkedIn will build associations between six cells and LinkedIn as, as a business networking environment and community. So that will that will help the, my brain understand something about six cells but not everything so we we will probably need to direct focal attention uh onto six cells to explain what it is what it does what the benefits are um, because otherwise you won't understand that all you'll know is this thing is on linkedin and that says something about the brand. I mean, one of the things that Rory talks about is the the uh, value of signalling. You know, particularly if brands advertise on what are known to be expensive media with high quality production, then that is a signal of confidence and, and trust because I've invested in that, uh, and I wouldn't do that if I was a, a rubbish brand, you know, or rubbish yeah. product or service. So simply the fact that you are there builds an association, but in, in the example you gave me, it's probably not going to be enough. Okay. And interestingly, um, I also interviewed Sam Tatum, uh, the mm. um, author of Evolutionary Ideas, Head of Behavioral Science at Ogilvy, so one of uh, Rory's colleagues. Um, and he was talking about, um, similar to signaling, I think it came under the signaling header, if you like, but if we see something and we, um, we recognize that other people have seen it as well, then we're more likely to trust it because the yes. reputational cost to the author of putting that out there uh, is quite great if it's not true. Um, so um, TV, again, any broadcast medium or or any published um, article or whatever video, whatever it might be that's out there and can be seen by many people potentially helps you to build trust as well. So yeah. a, a one-to-one email campaign or a direct LinkedIn messaging campaign might not work as well because the, the reputational cost of the sender of me just sending you a message and telling you something is true is obviously not um, anywhere near as um, uh, as risky, shall we say, as me putting that out there for somebody to criticize and uh, knock me down. Yeah, correct. 
So um, something else that stood out for me in the uh, the book, Phil, was um, something that I've I think if I've understood you correctly, it's something that I've believed for a long time. So we um, we hear about brand advertising and we hear about direct response advertising or activation advertising, whatever you want to call it. And then there is brand response advertising as well. But you talk about um, there need not be a trade off between hard selling and image based marketing um, and the same communication can do both. So could you explain what you mean by that? And mm. um, am I barking up the wrong tree? No, no, you're not. I mean, one in in marketing, we and, and advertising, we probably exist in a world where we we believe that one type of advertising does one job and a different type of advertising does a different job. But we forget that the way the brain perceives uh, the information from from the same brand will all form part of the associations that are built around that brand. So. Um, for example, there's a cleaning product called Silit Bang, um, which is advertised using a spokesperson yeah. uh, and the who's really in your face. And the ads are garish; they're loud. You know, there's a there's a dragster. Actually, his name, but my son, when he was young, used to re repeat it. He used to run around the house saying, "My name's something something." Yeah, bang, the dirt is gone. Barry <laughs> Scott. Harry Scott, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and bang, the dirt is gone. Yeah, it's really sort of in-your-face, hard-hitting, garish colours. There's one where he, he appears in a dragster that sort of roars into the studio. Um, and you might be mistaken for thinking that that is uh, a product ad. You know, it's very rational. It's based on the efficacy and functionality of the product. So... To balance that, we need a brand ad, something that's more, let's say, emotional. But, but as my one of the founders of, of uh, Decode, who's a neuroscientist, said to me, there is nothing that is not emotional. And what he meant by that is when we see Barry Scott shouting about the product and you know, big tick, soap scum, gone, big tick, line scale, gone, whatever, He's not only talking about the product, he's also activating social, emotional, psychological goals. So things like um, confidence, doing my best, pride, those, those are a certain type of goals. There will be mental relief will be triggered because you do eradicate the dirt. Caring for others, you know, you could be a, a parent or caregiver and this is it's important that surfaces are clean because you've got babies crawling around or whatever it might be. So caring for others, protection, reassurance. And of course, there are also sort of more expertise and uh, precision and control type um, goals activated. But those are all social, emotional, psychological goals that are activated by this in your face functional product ad. So back to my point, you cannot divorce the two there will always be associations that are built, even if it's a, you know, a direct response ad for um, a price offer, let's say, or some sort of special offer, that is going to trigger uh, emotional goals um, of, of discipline and control, uh, efficiency, um, feeling, feeling savvy, particularly in the current cost of living crisis, doing my best, things like that. So it's never just, a product or so-called rational ad. 
Yeah, you know, in the very early days of Facebook, before they understood the true value of advertising, they used to allow you to buy a target audience and only pay if somebody clicked. Mm -hmm. I thought I would be making my creative as brand heavy as possible with the minimal call to action um, so I could get those many, many millions of impressions and only pay for the few that clicked. Um, they caught onto that pretty quickly and you can't do it anymore. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought that. I, th I thought if you're going to try and capture somebody's attention, um, you know, by all means, make it emotional and brand led and, and tell the story of the brand. But there's, th there's no reason why that story couldn't end with, take Spec Savers, for example, one of my favorite um, brand advertisers, they tell little funny stories about how people might do silly things when partially sighted. The, the one that comes to mind is the vet trying to um, have an emergency operation on a fur hat because you can't <laughs> see that the cat's on the other table sort of thing. So that there's no reason why that couldn't end with, uh, at the very end frame, if you like, should have gone to spec savers, now, now two for one or free eye tests yeah. um, for, for the rest of the month and have a bit of a, a an act activation part to a brand story, right? Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah, you can combine the two. But we but we very often work to this. What is a false false dichotomy between, you know, we've got to have a hard hitting response ad and we've got to have a soft emotional ad. And um, that's not how the brain works. OK, so. So if marketers perhaps then think about advertising to different parts of the funnel, so maybe awareness at the top and branding, brand building, and then maybe lower down the final activation. Um, you talk in the book about the decision interface and, and how that might make the difference for marketers who are trying to optimize the path to purchase. Can you talk a little bit more about what the decision interface is and how that might help us um, to understand this sort of new mental model, please? Yeah, well, a, a decision interface is, is probably a bit of a highfalutin term that, that just describes um, what we perceive in the moment. So a decision interface could be uh, a landing page um, you know, or, or um, a social media ad. It's what we perceive in the moment. If we are going to make a decision, and you know, that decision might be to click through, it might be to buy or, or not. So the, the decision interface is, is hugely important because that's what the brain perceives. And what one of the uh, things about Kahneman, a lot of people think he won a Nobel Prize for his work on System 1, System 2. He didn't because that other people had already talked about dual system of mental processing. The real insight Kahneman brought was about System 1 uh, being bounded by the stimuli that we perceive. So he has this phrase, what you see is all there is. And it's true. System 1 cannot imagine. It, it just deals with literally what is in front of us. And you, you've heard the expression out of sight is out of mind. That's because if we don't perceive it, it we don't process it. We don't process it. Yeah. So the decision interface at a given point in time. Frequency of those distinctive assets, right? To, to be constantly um, there to be perceived in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Because distinctive assets give you that, that instant um, correct recognition of a brand without even the brand name having to be present. Um, but that's it. So coming back to decision interface, you know, what, what I perceive on my phone or my tablet or on my screen or in a shop or in a print magazine, whatever it might be, that is the critical interface that the brain is dealing with at that moment in time. Cool. Okay. Um, so you talk as, as well in the book, um, 
about moving from a, um, a thought process on, around positioning uh, and moving to touch points. Could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that, please? Yeah, well, si similar to the decision interface, so touch points being um, everything that we create as a brand. So uh, whether that is an experience or it's a bit of packaging design or it's a bit of com communication online or offline, each one of those is a is a point at which we touch the brand. That's why, hence the hence the name. And the idea of uh, moving from positioning to touch point is this translation of what your brand positioning is and your proposition into making sure that that is decoded by the brain across each and every touch point. So, for example, going back to T-Mobile. When we had the new proposition, which is which was life is for sharing, we then needed to translate what life is for sharing looked like and felt like across the the retail stores. So we actually changed some of the furniture, we changed the layout of the store. And, and an example of that is when you previously, when you'd gone into the T-Mobile store, the first thing you encountered was a counter. So there was a physical barrier between you and the and the staff, and it was a little bit daunting, and a bit um, sort of passive aggressive, if you like. You know, suddenly there's a person there staring at you. So we took that away. We moved it. We moved it to the back of the store. We we turned it by ninety, uh, 90 degrees, so that we we made the environment of the store a lot more welcoming and friendly. And we changed some of the furniture so that it was softer and rounder, different material than it had been very, it had been very harsh and angular and metallic. Um, so that each, in that case, the retail stores were the touch point that that supported what we meant by life is for sharing. We did the same in communications, obviously, but also in um, customer service interactions. So the, um, the scripts that the customer service agents had, the, software capabilities that they had were all changed to reflect this this new brand positioning so that's what i mean by translating the look and the feel of the positioning into what your touch points what your experiences what your interaction with the brand is each and every time and i guess once you've got those touch points in place and some of those touch points might be advertising mm. um it's about reaching as many people in the category as you can as frequently as you can with with consistency so you kind of start building those memory structures yeah yeah because this is all life is for sharing and t-mobile and the, and the flash dance and um and all of that good stuff yeah exactly and there's what one of the other things that i learned i think going back to your very first question about the different mental model was there is a huge strategic value in consistency because this is how the brain learns uh, through consistency and repetition and frequency. And there is a huge tendency in, in marketing and advertising to change stuff. Um, and that comes down to human nature. So, you know, a brand manager changes, a marketing director changes, who or she wants to make their mark. And often that is through change. And the same with advertising campaigns. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the scientists talk about where the wear in effect rather than the wear out effect, yeah. because it is all about learning. Now, it doesn't mean you have to keep everything rigid and never change, um, because you can, you can change at what we call the signal level 
but as long as you keep the fundamental meaning the same. And a great example of that is, is links or acts where they change their communications and that those reflect new variants, new fragrances, new move into different categories, but the underlying meaning stays the same. So you get this creative consistency, but you've also got consistently creative as well. So, you know, just spinning mm. the, the words around to, to show the value of, of, of helping the brain learn and make sense of what you're doing. Yeah, we, we've experienced that with our own clients at Six Sales, actually. So we, we'd, um, we're big um, exponents of that consistent messages delivered frequently um, in a distinctive way as possible. Um, and that's how we can sort of build and maintain awareness leads to familiarity, leads to trust and, and all of that good stuff. And, and if, if there's three key things that we need to be consistent on, we might be writing about that on a, on a very regular basis. And the people we're writing for or with um, can start to think, oh, I'm getting a bit bored with this. Should we say something else now? Whereas obviously the person on the, on the, um, the receiving end of those messages is probably only seeing it for a few seconds, having a quick look and going away again, and then forgetting all about it, and then until they, they see it again. So the consistency is really important to the audience, yeah. but the author can sometimes get a bit bored, and your, your example of a brand manager changing and thinking, well, let's let's jazz it up a bit and make it more interesting and exciting. Whereas um, I think Mark Ritson wrote about this recently, keeping everything distinctive, the Coca-Cola advert, at, um, you know, every Christmas, the holidays are coming, the same lorry, the same logo, the same kind of imagery, mm. um, just to reinforce that, um, you know, the happy, share happy um, around Coke and, and the holidays or Christmas, as we call it here. Yeah, absolutely right. Cool. Okay. So um, we're, we're nearly running out of time, but um, I loved how you, you managed to create an equation around um, purchase decisions. And I'd love to, um, I say you, um, perhaps decode um, collectively, I'm not sure, but um, you talked about net value equaling reward minus pain. Um, and you talked about um, the areas of the brain that perceive uh, reward being different to um, the areas of the brain that perceive cost or investment, as we like to call it, and never like to call it cost, it's always <laughs> an investment. But, but um, uh, essentially the reward is the pleasure part of the brain, the brain that sort of perceives pleasure thinks about the reward and then a different part kicks in and I'm probably murdering this. So um, I'm going to hand over to you in a second, but um, the, the part of the brain that uh, perceives pain is the bit that deals with the cost. And then those two things have to have a bit of a fight to figure out whether the net value is worth it or not. Right. Mm. Yeah. And um, the, the origins of this was a, a study at Stanford university by a neuroscientist, um, professor Brian Knutson. And he and his colleagues wanted to find out what goes on in the brain when people make a purchase decision. So he uh, recruited a bunch of people, put them in fMRI brain scanners, which measures um, blood oxidation in different regions of the brain, which is indicative of neurons firing. So crudely activity. And um, he, he showed them images of, of products and brands, and then he showed them the price, and then he asked them to press a button to indicate if they would buy the brand for the price or not. And he just observed what went on. And, and when people perceive brands, this so-called reward center in the brain, part of the orbitofrontal cortex was activated. Um, and the scientists knew from other studies that when this part of the brain is activated, there's a very high probability that action will follow. 
which is plausible because if you see something that's rewarding to you, you, you want to acquire that thing because it's, it's pleasurable. The other thing was they'd observed a similar activation when um, people perceive things that they value very highly. So if you show a parent an image of their kids, the reward center is triggered. If you show people who love art some images of fine art, their reward center is triggered. So the brain is using exactly the same region to ascribe some sort of value uh, to brands that they are rewarding. And yes, when people were shown price, a different part of the brain was activated that's activated if we experience physical pain or, or even social, so emotional pain. And also it's an area of the brain that's activated when we experience disgust as well. And, and that, you know, it sounds funny, but actually when you think about it, again, it's plausible because you, you've shown someone something that's rewarding, but then you're asking them to part with money, which we value highly. So it almost feels like it hurts to give away money. And then there's a trade-off, as you say, if the reward activation is sufficient to overcome the pain activation, the person presses, yes, I will buy. And if it's not, they press no. So this is the idea that net value has to be positive. So you've got a reward side of the equation, which in our world is about brands and products, the way we frame information, the services we offer, the, the, the value that we add to promotions or, or experiences. And you have a pain side of the equation, which is, yes, it's price, but it's, it's perceived price or expected price. So it's, yes, it is the actual monetary value, but it's also how we perceive that, which can be different depending on how the price is displayed. But it's, it's not just price, it's behavioral cost as well. So the time and the effort involved in, in making a purchase. And, and that's why, you know, often we find online where we're faced with sort of complexity of choice, we just give up in the end because it's too yeah. much hassle to acquire the, the reward. And that's why things like Amazon One Click are so successful, because on one hand, you've got the reward, you trust Amazon, you, the price is gonna be okay, but, and it's the behavioral cost is li literally one click. So it could, yeah. you know, could hardly be less. Um, and it's very important in, a, in our world because it gives us two levers to pull. We can increase the reward perception and or we can reduce the pain perception in order to get a positive net value. So that's, that's you know, why it's so fundamental because we've found, or neuroscientists have found what happens in the brain when we make a purchase decision. And it, it's the same for you know, whether you're buying a 50p candy bar or a house or a 5,000 pound Louis Vuitton handbag or a car or a packet of washing powder. It's, it, it's exactly the same process. Now, obviously mm -hmm. the rewards are different and the pain are different, but the process is identical. Okay. So you touched upon the reward center there and, and it's sort of kind of lighting up, if you like, if we show people something of value with it, you gave the example of perhaps um, showing a granddad, their, their grandkids or whatever. So is that in part then why brands are trying to appear in moments where reward centers are activated? So um, O2 do a lot around music, for example. Um, um, Nike do a lot around football and running. And, and is it because they're trying to build associations as that reward center is fired up, if you like. Um, so in a B2B sense, it might be, you've come to LinkedIn, you're thinking about work, it's a work-related thing. If you see um, a brand consistently um, in that environment, then you're, you know, you're kind of making that association. Is that, is that in part why brands try to be around uh, emotional um, um, 
environments that that um, create passion in people. Yeah, partly, partly that that is true. But the other thing, like with Nike, um, the reward center is the part of the brain that places a an idea of value on different choices that we face. And that value is built on the associations that we have built over time. And this comes back to goals again. So if we built a very strong association between Nike and a certain set of goals or jobs to be done, then Nike will have the highest valuation um, when that goal or job to be done is relevant to us. So like mm. if we built a strong association between Coca-Cola and refreshment, when we're looking for, when we're in need of refreshment, Coca-Cola is has the highest mental availability. Um, and you know, that's one, one of the reasons why um, Coke is so ubiquitous because you know, human beings are constantly in need of, of liquid. Um, mm. So having it, as they say, at arms, within arm's reach of desire um, is so powerful. But also, I mean, if weird things go on in the brain. So, for example, if you have a strong association between Coke and refreshment, the sensors in your optic nerve that deal with the color red become more sensitized. So you are more likely to find Coke. So there are physiological changes that happen as a result. It's a, an incredibly powerful system geared to make us, to help us survive. That, that's what it comes back down to. And that's where, you know, brand, the segue between the sort of neuro bio, biological evolution and brands is, is, is wonderful because we have come to learn that brands are instrumental in helping us achieve certain goals or certain because achieving goals is rewarding. That's why it fits in this reward center. Fantastic. Phil, I could speak to you for hours, um, but thank you so much for your time. Um, Phil's book, Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy, is uh, updated now. So my lovely Six Cells Orange uh, book that I have here, um, I, I understand it's been there's replaced a new by a lime green version. version. <laughs> it is green, is it? Oh, my, yeah. my eyes slash the video was uh, showing that as, as yellow. So it's green. So when you're uh, looking on Amazon or other book uh, stores for the book, look for the green one, not the orange one. It's the, num um, it's the number one hot new release on Amazon, apparently, which is nice to hear. Fantastic. I haven't got all the way through it yet, as I admitted before we came on air, but um, so far, uh, fascinating enough to uh, to message you while on holiday to uh, to try and uh, have this conversation. So really appreciate your time, Phil. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Um, and thanks for being on the Six Souls podcast. Pleasure. Thanks a lot.